Welcome back to Streamageddon, the streaming TV podcast that is here to disrupt your podcast feed. I am your ethically questionable CEO, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by my co-founder, Diane Nora. Hi, Diane. Hi, Chris. I'm super pumped to be here. Oh, I'm super pumped to be here, too. How many times do you think we can get away with saying super pumped in this episode about super pumped? Well, they did it twice in the pilot, so I think we've got some leeway. I think so, too. That's exactly what I was thinking. And listener, if you haven't figured it out yet, you are not listening closely because we are going to review Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, uh, and we are super pumped to talk about it, but we digress because that's coming up in the second half of the show. First, we're going to get to some follow-up and some news stories from this week. And to get started, uh, a little tiny bit of follow-up from CNN Plus, CNN Plus is, of course, the uh, CNN streaming service that we are all just so excited for. Uh, right, Diane? Oh, I'm on tenterhooks. I can see it in your eyes. Uh, we mentioned CNN Plus last week, and uh, right afterwards, uh, a bunch of launch details leaked or were announced. Is there really a difference in the media world? Uh, CNN Plus is coming soon with a early subscriber discount rate. I mean, get excited, because you can subscribe to CNN Plus for $2.99 a month for life. They, they made a point of saying if you subscribe for $2.99 a month, you are locked in for life. And there is just such a horrifying image in my head of being locked into a CNN streaming service for life. When will my life end? Because that makes it sound bleak and either too long or too short. I don't know. Uh, does that entice you, Diane? It sounds like a bad gym membership. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's a great deal, and you can never cancel. Uh, mm -hmm. Or, you know, don't sign up early. That's fine. Regular CNN Plus will apparently cost $5.99 a month. And uh, today I learned that is the same price as Fox Nation, which is the streaming service from Fox News. And the only other thing I know about Fox Nation is that they have a TV show called Castles USA with Judge Janine. And the reason I know they have this show is because my Roku TV screensaver, when I forget to turn off the Roku TV, uh, shows me ads for a variety of things I never want to watch. And one of them is an ad for Castles USA with Judge Janine. And it's just a like billboard of her face in front of a castle. I didn't even know we had that many castles. But also, isn't she the one who drinks a lot? I would yes. get drunk with her in a castle. Yeah, the thing I is... I really object to her as a human, but... But I can imagine her just boozing around a bunch of weird castles somewhere in America where there are castles. And, and you know what? That, that would be a good time. Cheers to you, Janine. Oh, cheers indeed, but I will never tune in to find out. Uh, and and similarly, I don't know if I'll ever tune in to CNN Plus, but uh, the offer stands $2.99 a month for the rest of your life. Uh, and they've already said that they will offer a bundle with HBO Max. They just came right out. There's an article in the LA Times with more of the details. And one of those details is, yeah, we know we're going to make a bundle. Because how many people really want to just subscribe to CNN Plus? Well, and if you don't get that first month deal and you subscribe later, it's fifty nine ninety nine a year. That's a lot for just CNN Plus. And, and to be clear, that is not CNN. You are not getting access to the live cable channel CNN. You are getting a separate selection of on-demand programming that includes many of the anchors you know and love. There's a list here including names like Wolf Blitzer, Brian St 
Detler, um, Jake Tapper. Ooh, don't you love them all? I did hear Alison Roman is going to have a, a show involving food, which I would maybe watch, but not for $60 a month. No. Get over yourself, Chris Licht. What is going on? To be fair, Chris Licht, we, we brought this up last week because Chris Licht is taking over as head of CNN. Uh, that was the big news last week. He formerly ran uh, CBS Good Morning and currently runs The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And so he's a big uh, name to take over CNN in general. But all of his CNN Plus plans, they all predate him. He is walking into this and either has to embrace it or pivot hard. And we will find out. And on top of that, all of this is then uh, complicated by the upcoming Discovery merger. And Discovery will then install Chris Licht and either bundle it all into some new Hydra three-headed Discovery HBO CNN bundle package or they'll throw CNN Plus out to the sea. I have no idea. If it does become just something I can add on for not that much to my HBO monthly thing, like HBO Plus or HBO, HBO Plus, I'm Max, inventing streaming services. All of, you know what? It's HBO Max Plus with Discovery News. That's the name. I've coined it. I would maybe. I would maybe. Yeah, that's the thing is, if it's like a $2 add-on to something I'm already subscribing to, and I hear that, yeah, hey, that nightly news stream with Wolf Blitzer is really good at recapping the day's news, yeah, okay, I might want that sometimes. I get home from work late. I, You know, in the uh, pandemic days, you, you know, the, the real pandemic as opposed to the, this now unreal pandemic. I, I would watch a ton of Maddow at night because I was trapped at home and working from home and had no life. And I did enjoy that nightly dose of Maddow kind of cradling me. I'm cradling mm. uh, myself in real life right now as if people can see me. But that's what Maddow did to me. She kind of made me like twist into a, a ball and cradle myself at night. And uh, I miss I miss a feeling like that when I get home from work. I like the idea of pouring a glass of Cabernet and being told how terrible the world is in a, a calming voice or, or a strident voice, whichever voice they choose, really. She's got a kind of folksy thing that she does. Yeah, it's like strident but, but folksy. But all the same. All the same. It, CNN, CNN wishes. They really wish they had strident but folksy. They're working on it. They poached Chris Wallace from Fox News, and he will be hosting a nightly news program on CNN Plus specifically. And he is somewhat strident but folksy. Sure. I, I do not want to hang out with him the way I want to hang out with Rachel Maddow, but that's a different story. I don't want to be cradled by Chris Wallace. Not even close. Although Jake Tapper, he could. He could cradle me. <laughs> And you know, there's one more detail about CNN Plus I don't want to let go of. Uh, from the same LA Times article, there's just a one line that says, CNN Plus will likely cost several hundred million to operate this year. Several hundred million. To operate not CNN, to operate CNN Plus. Which to me sounds a bit like a CNN minus. <laughs> but you know, we'll find out. And you know what else we're going to find out more about? My good friend Rachel Maddow, as we transition into some new news featuring our good friends at MSNBC. (laughs) 
We have so much Peacock news to get to this week, and it kicks off with MSNBC, which is coming to Peacock, not including Rachel Maddow. I'm going to just rip the Band-Aid right off there. Zero Rachel Maddow coming to this new round of MSNBC on Peacock. Uh, though they they teased that we could get some Rachel Maddow content down the road, much like we will get some Anderson Cooper content, but not Anderson Cooper 360, and we will get some Wolf Blitzer content, but not The Situation Room on CNN Plus. They they, they really are trying to make their personalities um, the draw, and not the shows themselves. Which okay, it's a choice. Uh, But this Peacock situation is at least interesting, at least more interesting to me than CNN Plus, because it involves a service I already have. Peacock. We Peacock Peacock. We do Peacock Peacock. And uh, what we found out uh, this week is that uh, Peacock is getting rid of a live stream channel they had called The Choice which was where you could watch live news, which I guess they really made a choice when they decided to call that the choice. Who would know what that was? Yes, one, very difficult to find the live channels in the Peacock app to begin with. And number two, if I saw one labeled the choice, I would think it's a series of lifetime original movies about difficult decisions in people's lives. I have no idea what that means. I would totally believe it was like a singing competition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it turns out it was news, and that's over now, because they're just getting rid of that and replacing it with a a really catchy new segment inside Peacock called MSNBC Hub on Peacock. That is the official name. It's so pithy. I love everything about it. MSNBC Hub on Peacock. You know, at least it is what it says on the tin. Right. It's an improvement over the choice, which was a really low bar. So I, I guess they they could have gone backwards and they didn't. So congratulations, Peacock. You're, you're moving in the right direction, sort of. Uh, and what you can get on MSNBC Hub on Peacock are uh, pre-recorded, not live, Uh, on-demand installments of some but not all of the shows on MSNBC. So some of their examples were uh, you can watch Morning Joe, because who doesn't want to watch Morning Joe at four in the afternoon? Uh, Or you can watch Nicole Wallace's show, Deadline White House, again, after it's aired, a few hours later. You cannot watch any of the popular primetime shows like Rachel Maddow or The Last Word with Jed Bartlett's abusive father from the West Wing. That's Lawrence O'Donnell, but I always know him by his real calling, playing Jed Bartlett's abusive father in flashbacks on the West Wing. Real quick sidebar. He also wrote for that show, which I was always surprised by. But yeah, why? Yeah. So if you want some of MSNBC's prominent Republicans streaming, then... This is the hub on Peacock for you. Such a such a great way to describe it. Um, and it comes with your Peacock subscription. Not the free tier of Peacock, but Peacock Premium or Peacock Premium Plus. Both include the MSNBC hub on Peacock, which really, to be accurate, they should have named MSNBC hub on Peacock Premium. But uh, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. It, it seems like it'll be easier for folks who already are looking for msnbc to find on peacock 
Yes, this that is seems a, like a win. A logical way to look at this is I know that Peacock is NBC, and if I want to watch news on NBC, my brain goes to MSNBC. And so, yes, there should have been a tile in Peacock all along that said something with MSNBC in the name, just so that I knew what to look for if I was trying desperately to find a show from MSNBC, only to learn that my choices are Morning Joe and Nicole Wallace. But still, I'd probably, in desperation, watch some of them. Sure. None of I them mean, are I cradling me. Not, I, th- that's just such an upsetting image. But otherwise, yeah. I don't know if this is going to be enough for MSNBC viewers who are, like, torn about cutting the cord to feel confident in that choice. But if you had, you know, gotten rid of your cable and were kind of missing some of that MSNBC content, this might be an okay option. Right, it's there. You can try that out. That's the answer. And for the time being, they they cannot take the linear cable channel and put it on streaming uh, because the cable companies pay them way too much money to carry that channel, and they would riot. It is the, why do people still get cable? Live sports and live news. And that is a boat that still cannot be fully rocked. So much of the cable boat has been rocked, but live sports, live news, they're, they're the last holdouts. When January 6th, the the sequel happens, Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to watch live. I am. I am. And I bet there will be some sort of live something that they will have on Peacock, but it will not be the same anchors who are giving you that warm, comforting, bleak, dystopian feeling on MSNBC Live. Mm -hmm. But at least it makes more sense than CNN+. Oh, yeah. And that's not the only Peacock news we have this week, because this week is the week I am dubbing the Peacockalypse. That's how it feels. The Peacockalypse is here. Uh, the Peacockalypse, of course, refers to the inevitable plan for Peacock to pull back its shows from Hulu. And if you have not been following this closely, we'll give you the quick recap. You might be aware that you can watch a lot of NBC shows next day on Hulu, but you might also be aware that Hulu is primarily owned by Disney. So why does NBC let any of their shows air next day on Hulu when they want you to pay them money for Peacock Premium and watch those shows next day on Peacock instead? Why? Why is it like this? Well, answer number one is history, and there's a long, sordid history with the ownership of Hulu that I do not feel like talking about right now. But number two is money. And that's the history I do feel like talking about for a second because it applies beyond Peacock, too. Uh, What's basically happening here is at the start of the new TV season in the fall... Uh, Peacock is going to end this deal, NBC Universal, I should say, is going to end this deal that was licensing the next day streaming of most of their shows to Hulu. And the way that that works is Hulu was paying NBC kind of, you know, in a way, free money to have the right to stream Saturday Night Live on Sunday or Law and Order on Friday. And a lot of people, especially cord cutters who have Hulu, obviously, were watching those shows next day on Hulu. And that would build up for the course of the season. So I could binge most of the season of Law & Order SVU or Chicago Med Fire Police Garbage Collector. I could stream those on Hulu, even though they were also on Peacock. And obviously, that's good for NBC in that they're getting money from Hulu. And it's bad for NBC in that I have no reason to check those shows out on Peacock. 
And so they finally made the choice that they were inevitably going to make, which is to prioritize Peacock's growth over the free money that they were getting from Hulu. I did sometimes tune in and watch Saturday Night Live on Hulu. Uh, I, I was sometimes falling into that trap on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. But I don't know that I would turn on Peacock on a Sunday to watch last night's SNL. Yeah, there's more friction there. I'll give you that. I, I watch my Law & Order shows, for example, on Hulu, partly because I like the Hulu interface better, partly because I have ad-free Hulu. And I, the Peacock plan I'm on has ads. And so obviously I'm going to pick the ad-free one. And now it's a question for me and the tens of other people like me, should I upgrade to Peacock Premium Plus to get the ads out of those shows or will I suffer through the ads or will I just not care that much and not watch them as regularly? All possibilities. And that's the gamble that Peacock's making. They might actually lose a lot of viewership and not gain much. But this this had to happen at some point because we can look to recent history with CBS and Paramount. There's a big losses if you have a hit and somebody else has it on streaming because you licensed it out. And the obvious example there is Yellowstone, which was a obviously a huge hit on Paramount Network, the cable network. And at the time, they weren't interested in goosing up their streaming service, so they licensed it to Peacock. And of all places, Peacock has the streaming rights for Yellowstone, which is the most popular show on cable right now. And so you can't stream that on Paramount+. Plus. And the CBS, Viacom, now Paramount family, they, they took that as a lesson, and they began to claw back as much of their IP as they could, to the point where the newest season of Star Trek Discovery got pulled off of Netflix International, because that's where it was premiering overseas, even before Paramount Plus is available in most of those markets. And so people in those other countries just for a while cannot watch Star Trek Discovery because Paramount Plus is coming soon and they don't want you to have the chance to watch their their you know flagship shows on another streaming service. They they feel like they've made a misstep. They've gone too far in the wrong direction just taking the easy money from licensing. And now they're trying to course correct as fast as they can. And it was only a matter of time before NBC Universal had the same kind of decision to make. I think that shows that all these companies think that the future is in streaming. I mean, 100%. that's where their future revenue is. Even if right now a lot of these platforms seem to be losing money, they realize that long-term investment-wise, this is this is the direction things are going. Yeah. Yeah, and so we'll we'll see in the fall when this kicks in what that does for Peacock's numbers. Will Peacock get a boost, especially around you know shows like Saturday Night Live, like you mentioned? Will people be so motivated to finally uh, you know subscribe to Peacock Premium in order to watch last night's SNL? When I say it, it sounds insane, but it might work. It really could. And certainly they have to try because the alternative is just having Peacock only differentiate itself with wrestling, which has worked for them, the Olympics, which has not worked for them, and uh, Rutherford Falls, which I love, but I don't think that's enough of a differentiator. Right. Well, I guess for each person, though, they only need the one thing you're switching over for, right? Yeah. And and, and listen, SNL could be a big one. 
Uh, and Late Night could too. Fallon and, and Seth Meyers, uh, potentially the combination of all that could draw a lot of people over. I know people who subscribe to Paramount Plus just because they want to be able to stream Colbert. And that's the easiest way to do it unless you want to piece together like five different YouTube clips and watch a bunch of bad YouTube ads in between. And NBC is really good about getting their stuff right off of YouTube. So that uh -huh. won't be an option for SNL lovers. So am I curious to see if it will work for them. Me too. And we will find out this fall when most of those shows vanish from Hulu. However, many back seasons of shows will remain due to other separate licensing agreements for older seasons of shows like Law & Order SVU, which will only add to the confusion when people go and they, they say, where is the new season of SVU? Was SVU canceled? What happened? Where is it? And will they know that the answer is it's over on Peacock? Oh boy. I, I, I have a feeling Hulu will not volunteer that information to them. Nope. Hmm. Well, that, that is what's going on in the world of Peacock. And we do Peacock Peacock, so we will be back whenever there's more Peacock news to talk about. But now we have to shift over to uh, another major juggernaut, the parent company of Hulu itself, Disney. And specifically, Disney+. Plus. And Disney Plus announced that they are going to do the other inevitable thing that happens to all streaming services. They're going to introduce a cheaper ad-supported tier. And in a way, it's about time. And in another way, chaos reigns in the streets. Because what are you going to do? Put a commercial break in the middle of Beauty and the Beast? The Geico, the Geico Gecko is going to appear after Gaston storms the castle? I have questions. I mean, I guess that they might have ad breaks for some of those things that have previously aired on television right they have content that had ad breaks built in for sure things that originally aired on network but they also have content like the mandalorian and the marvel shows that were never edited for ad breaks and so what do you do there do you just drop some random ad breaks in do you do pre-roll ads so i have to sit through like two minutes of commercials before this show starts and and my big lingering question what do you do with the movies are the movies going to have ads in them or are they going to have like three minutes of pre-roll or, or like whole trailers beforehand like I'm at the movies? What what do you, What is the shape of this ad-supported service? And to be clear, Disney is really good at selling ads on streaming because what you might not know is they love their ad-supported Hulu tier. A lot of people uh, subscribe to Hulu just on the ad-supported tier to the point that Disney... I don't have the source for this number, but trust me when I say it's true. Disney says that they make as much on the ad revenue from Hulu as they do on the subscriber revenue from all of Hulu. So they don't care if you upgrade to the ad-free the ad -free tier of Hulu because they're making the money either way. And I imagine it's the same game with Disney+. Plus. They don't care which tier you go to as long as you're on one of the Disney Plus tiers and it all adds up to profit because it's more users, more activity, more viewers. That's what you want. The thing I'm curious about when it comes to Disney Plus is what that will mean for the forthcoming programming. Like, will the next season of something like Mandalorian which may be already be written, but for the stuff that's not written yet, be created with act breaks set for possible TV breaks or for 
possible ad breaks? I don't know. I mean, we'll see, but it would really change the structure of those shows potentially. Yeah. And yeah, especially some of those really cinematic shows like The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett and some of the Marvel shows as well. Like, it, I, I have a hard time imagining, for example, uh, ad breaks fitting in WandaVision, a show that deliberately plays with television genre and era and references those things. Nothing would rip me out of the, uh, you know, 50s vibe of the pilot of WandaVision, like an ad for, you know, Applebee's. Applebee's. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, exactly right. So we'll see. Boy, Sam Jackson walks into a, a Capital One ad in the middle of a Marvel show. That's too confusing. It's too confusing. What does it mean? <laughs> is it a post credit scene? Is it a mid credit scene? What is happening? Did they start creating ads just for that platform? Okay. If they did do custom mid credit sequence style ads just for the Marvel shows, I would purposely downgrade to the ad supported tier in order to understand this meta synergy they're creating that would be amazing they don't want you to do that no, they, they want you well they no want they money. don't care they don't care they make the money <laughs> on the true. ad revenue they make the money on the subscriber revenue i am worth the same amount to them whether i subscribe to the fancy disney plus or the plebeian disney plus it does not matter but what does matter to them is that I do subscribe, and I do think that this means they will raise the price of ad-free Disney+. Plus, Almost definitely. I mean, I think that they know that people will pay for it. I don't know anyone who is paying for Disney+, Plus now, who, if it were a couple more dollars a month, would opt out. Right. I, just, I, you've got too many fans. Yeah, and I do think having the lower price ad-supported tier for people who are maybe only into Disney Plus for a few specific shows makes it easier for people to forget to cancel. Because the other way to handle it is like, I only sign up when there's a full season of The Mandalorian to binge, and then when it's over, I skip it for a while and I cancel it. Uh, And a lot of people, you know, know themselves well enough to know that they're going to forget to cancel. And so then maybe they just don't sign up because they're like, ah, I don't want to like get charged for it and forget again. But if you have a $4.99 a month, let's say, ad supported tier, the barrier to entry is lower. Then you don't kick yourself as much when you forget to cancel. Then you think, whatever, it's only five bucks. Like there's a lot of virtue in the lower price point which ironically is basically probably going to wind up being close to the original price point. But we always knew that the original price point for Disney Plus was too good to be true. That was a get them in the door uh, special CNN Plus style lifetime offer, except you didn't get to keep it for the rest of your life. You got to keep it for the life of uh, Disney's accounting. Mm, that is That does happen to me every month when I see my Paramount Plus bill. And I'm like, why did I sign up for that? Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Eh, I guess I'll keep it. Before we move on to a completely different reason you might cancel Disney+, Plus, let's talk about something that's coming soon to Disney+, Plus that I just, I had to mention. There's a trailer for uh, the new Ben Kenobi show. I was going to call it the Ben Kenobi show. That would be such a better name for this show. It's called Obi-Wan Kenobi because it's about Obi-Wan Kenobi, but it's during the time when he's like in hiding and watching out for Luke from afar, and he goes by Ben Kenobi, and as soon as I made the mistake, I realized they made the mistake. The show should be called Ben Kenobi. Yeah, that seems... Maybe they're worried people won't know who that is. Who Kenobi is. Yeah, that might be the problem. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, the trailer is 90 seconds of Ewan McGregor looking really pensive, and I'm here for that. Whew, as am I. He's outstanding. 
Truly, truly. Will the show be outstanding? Probably not. But will I watch all of it for Ewan McGregor? 100,000% yes. I would bet money that it's very watchable. I, I bet. I bet. And in a way, they've lowered the bar a bit after the Book of Boba Fett was kind of so-so, to say the least. Uh, and so this has the opportunity to maybe be a little more uh, generously received. Because to be fair to the Book of Boba Fett, it was coming in with really high expectations. The Mandalorian's very good overall. And, you know, taking a spin-off story with an iconic character like Boba Fett, expectations were high. And now we have another iconic character getting a spin-off story, but our expectations for spin-offs have been lowered a bit. Yeah, but with a big star involved, so you can count on people to tune in. Yeah, and I will tune in in May when it premieres on Disney+. Plus. If I'm still subscribing to Disney Plus in May, because now we're going to talk about the reason maybe we should all just cancel our Disney Plus. And that is, oh boy, I can't believe I'm going to say this phrase. Florida's don't say gay bill. And if this is uh, terrifying you because you think we're about to turn into a news podcast, fear not. We we don't know nearly enough about what we're talking about to tune in to a full-blown news podcast. But uh, we do have to discuss this because it touches on Disney in particular. And I think their response to this situation, let's say, is very complicated and not so smart for a big streamer and entertainment company like Disney. Uh, So I guess a bit of background is due. If you've not been following the news, I congratulate you, first of all. And second of all, need to explain that Florida is passing, about to pass, it seems, a law that they do not call the Don't Say Gay Bill, but it is the Don't Say Gay Bill. Because what it tells teachers is that they cannot discuss sexual orientation or gender identity with any students below the third grade. And even after that, they can only discuss it in a vague, age-appropriate manner, which is not clearly defined. And then parents have the right to sue the school district if they feel that this ill-defined age-appropriateness has been breached by their teacher, which is obviously begging for people to complain and sue and teachers to be afraid to bring any of this up whatsoever. And so Disney as you might know, has a somewhat large presence in the state of Florida, and, as you might also know, has a lot of gays who enjoy their content. You might call them Disney gays. (laughs) But they don't seem to care about their Disney gays or their gay employees in Florida because Disney has been giving money to the Florida Republicans who have been pushing this bill. And, of course, Disney also gives money to Democrats. Disney gives money to both sides because Disney loves everyone and loves everyone's right to discriminate against everyone else. And that seems to be the core of Disney's response, is this is not a Disney problem. Disney is uh, totally innocent in this affair. We have no ability to sway anyone whatsoever as perhaps the largest, most recognizable entertainment brand on the face of the earth. Nobody cares what we say. Our money doesn't affect any outcomes. We, we just have it. It's just there. It's a disgrace. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) The idea, number one, that they are playing both sides feels dishonest when every single legislator who voted yes for the bill has received money from them. It's intellectually dishonest and morally reprehensible. Yeah, and where I really went off on my rant, when I I went full-blown 
uh, you know, rant from network. That's a deep, deep reference. I don't know how many of our listeners are really thinking, yes, the rant from the movie network. But when I got into my uh, I'm mad as hell moment is uh, the response from Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Uh, Bob Chapek initially just tried to avoid this altogether and say, you know, this this is really nothing to do with us. And people called him out on it, including investors on an investor call. And so Disney had to release more of a statement. And as many corporate statements go, it did not help the situation. So I just want to highlight a couple of lines from this statement. Uh, Chapek in his statement says, the biggest impact we can have in creating a more inclusive world is through the inspiring content we produce. That's it. That's their solution is more inspiring content. That is what will solve discrimination and bigotry that they themselves have helped fund and lobby for. It's just, I mean, you can't take that statement seriously. It's just obviously not honest. Yes, and it gets better, by which I mean even worse, uh, because he then goes on to list several movies as if this is this is proof that they're the good guys. He he lists Encanto, Black Panther, Pose, Reservation Dogs, Coco, Soul, Modern Family, Shang-Chi, Summer of Soul, Love Victor. And then adds, these and all our diverse stories are our corporate statements, and they are more powerful than any tweet or lobbying effort. They literally just went and said, Look at how woke we are. We have Love, Victor, and Black Panther. Those movies aren't even all gay. I know. It's, it's so offensive. And I really feel for the artists who made those films, you know, and just w- were looking for a good platform yeah. and a good contract, who really, Chapek here, is completely exploiting with this sh- just a worthless excuse yeah. And, and, and what really adds to it, if you're not in, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, you, you might not really have your eye on how tone deaf Disney has been towards gay representation in some of their major tent poles. And a great example, two of them. Number one, they point to a lesbian kiss at the end of a Star Wars movie, not between any really important character. It's just like, hey, two ladies kissing at the success of the good guys at the end of this movie. Okay, sure, that's not really representation. That's just some extras in the background. And their other one is, uh, and this one a lot of people did notice, the Marvel movies have essentially no gay representation through any of the installments. And this got to the point where when they released Avengers Endgame, they made a big deal out of a gay character. And by gay character, they mean there's a guy in a group therapy scene with Captain America at the beginning of the movie who mentions his, like, boyfriend. That's it. It's not a superhero. It's not even a character you see again ever That's their definition of gay representation. Look, we acknowledged gay people exist. Isn't that good enough for you? No. (laughs) No. And of course, that gay character was played by a straight man. Uh, But more importantly, that's not representation. You are not inspiring me with your diverse storytelling. You are paying lip service to your Disney gays in the hopes that they will not get so upset that they stop coming to your theme park. Representation is so important, but representation is not equal to power. And for these corporations to pretend that that is their only way of exerting their influence, we're not buying it. And I I think that Netflix had a similar issue recently with the um, 
everything that happened around the Dave Chappelle issue. Yeah. And again, that was not a, a satisfactory response. I think that issues like this one of representation for communities will continue coming up with m multiple streaming services and giving us, you know, a crumb of gay content in a Marvel movie is just not, not enough to cut it anymore. No, no, it is not. And I do want to end this topic uh, before we get too far off track here by pointing out that at the end of all of this, this could be a very stupid business decision for Disney, not just because they risk upsetting a core demographic, gays, gays family, uh, liberals in general. Y you have a lot of people there who think you're on the wrong side of this issue and know people who are directly affected by it. A growing demographic. Yes. Look at Gen Z. Yes. The people you are desperately trying to keep from fleeing your brand and going to, like, TikTok instead. These are the people who you should be uh, making yourself appeal to. Not the screeching, angry, bigoted parents in Fort Lauderdale. But, you know, each their own, I guess. And uh, the other way this could be bad for their business is, again, back to the law itself. It allows parents to sue the school district, to complain if they even feel that something was inappropriate for their child. And so that means you, you could have a situation where it is not okay, or a, a teacher, a teacher, because they are the ones afraid for their jobs, a teacher feels that it is not okay to show Avengers Endgame to a middle school class because some parent might get outraged by that 10 seconds of gay representation trying to brainwash their child into a, you know, d you know disgusting lifestyle, uh, let alone, I mean, God forbid, you let them see the depraved sexual bacchanal that is modern family. <laughs> They're just going to have to do better. We just have to demand it. We have to. We have to. Until there's a new season of some Marvel show that we all feel obsessed with to subscribe to their service for. But maybe I'll stick it to them by going to the ad-supported tier, huh? Huh? And they'll have to make their money off me a different way. Sorry for cursing. They make me so mad. I know. It's okay. We're, we bleeped it. We bleeped it because this is a family-friendly podcast. We say gay, but we don't say anything your child shouldn't hear. Hmm? And, you know, we need a palate cleanser after that before we move on from the news. So really quickly, I'm going to just cleanse our palate. I hope uh, nothing goes, you know, horribly wrong in our, I hope our days don't start over. Oh, no. Oh, no, it's happening. Oh, no, the day's beginning again. Gotta get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning. I'm kidding. It's not starting over again. You're not having a stroke, listener. That's just a reference to Russian Doll. Have you seen Russian Doll, Diane? I have only seen the pilot of Russian Doll, which is a great pilot. It's a really good pilot, actually. It's extremely good. Ah, I would rewatch that. Uh, Russian Doll, a Netflix series that I could best describe as what if we did a gritty female-led reboot of Groundhog Day. And honestly, that sounds great. Well, it's coming back for a second season. There you go. That was a nice little palate cleanser. They announced that the second season of Russian Doll is coming on April 20th, better known as 420, which is probably the best day to binge watch a series about time loops involving a uh, drug-addled but very scrappy New Yorker. It's one of those shows that it seems like you don't need to be too tuned in to every plot point because but it's if you going are, to repeat there itself. Are, there are clues everywhere. Clues. You have to watch really closely for the clues. That could be tricky on that particular day of the year for some people. 
Yeah, I don't know if this speaks really highly to the content of season two or if it's saying, yeah, season two is not going to make a lot of sense unless you're stoned. So you know what? Better watch it stoned. And I see you. I see you, Netflix. I see what you're doing there. I accept your challenge. Happy holidays. Mm, Thank you so much. But uh, we have another very happy topic to talk about, and that is the review we're getting into this week. It is a a show about everyone's favorite um, disruptor of the economy, of uh, people's livelihoods, of the entire New York City taxi industry. I'm talking, of course, about a company called Uber and a show called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Which has this very tense music. Oh. The music does not make me super pumped, but it does accurately reflect how I feel about Uber's existence, I think. I like music for the show. Yeah, it is. It feels right. It's, it's nice and moody. It is moody. And it is a, a show of many moods. Uh, super Pumped airs on Showtime. We watched the first two episodes for review, and it is currently in season. It's also uh, in a very Showtime way. This is the, you know, Showtime's going to Showtime. You can watch the pilot for free on YouTube, so if you don't have Showtime but you're curious, the pilot's on YouTube, you can check it out. And uh, because Showtime is the network that is going to renew things forever and ever and ever until they are unwatchably bad. Uh, See, for example, Weeds or, um, you know, William H. Macy's career. Uh, There is already a second season of Super Pumped planned, but they're going to make it an anthology show where they do a different tech company every season, which is incredibly confusing because the phrase Super Pumped is a direct quote from Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber. It's the title of the book that the entire series is based on. It's based on a book called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber by New York Times tech writer Mike Isaac. And now I guess the next season will be called like Super Pumped, The Battle for Chewy.com. I, 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 don't, I don't understand the logic there. They haven't explained anything beyond we're going to keep doing Super Pumps. And that is really on brand for Showtime. And does not inspire me with a ton of confidence for the future seasons, but that's a that's for another day, another episode, another year in our lives. We're here to talk about season one, episodes one and two, that begin telling us the story of Uber founder Travis Kalanick and uh, his rise to power, let's say. And we will, I assume, eventually see his fall from power because he is no longer the CEO of Uber. Right, and I think that they're counting on the fact that their audiences are sort of clued in to the tech world, or at least curious about it? There does seem to be, like, you have some knowledge of Uber's rise and fall here. They, they take it for granted that you know something of Travis Kalanick. I mean, I did going in. I had read a couple profiles of him, and I was like, oh, this guy seems uh-huh. like a creep. Uh-huh. He seems like the sort of person that you read profiles on who becomes a successful uh, startup leader. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you find or, out that he tortured uh, and dismembered several people in his basement. Right. Or he, or he started a cult. Yeah. And in fact, there is cult references in episode two, which feels really on brand in many ways. Uh, The main characters of the story, besides Travis, it's about his relationship with uh, venture capital investor Bill Gurley. Travis is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is doing great work here because it is so fun to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing a slime ball. 
It is. Yeah. I mean, he's so charming. He's just like the nice enough guy that you could kind of still be interested, even though like within moments of the show starting, he is so, so truly despicable. He's like making jokes about women being attacked and it's like, welcome to the show. Uh Uh-huh. They set that tone real fast. They didn't pull punches. But yeah, so the venture capitalist who funds him, Bill Gurley, played by Kyle Chandler, who is also doing good work. He's great. And who we have not seen yet, but completes the kind of uh, marketing trifecta that they've launched the show with, is Uma Thurman as Ariana Huffington, who comes in as an investor. And she is not in the first two episodes, I'm sorry to say, so I have no opinion on what I hope is the scene-stealing element of the show. Yeah, I mean, that is something that hooks me in to watch potential future episodes. Yeah, it is. I mean, story-wise, it makes sense. She's not there yet. But it also is a good hook to keep me going. Oh, she's fantastic. But in the pilot, as you mentioned, we kind of get launched into the world of Uber very quickly. And the pilot moves fast between two, three, maybe four different time periods. The pilot jumps around so much. I have no idea when anything is happening in the pilot, except when we go really far back in time. And then we kind of get forward again. And then I think we're caught up to sort of the present, I put in air quotes, because the whole show takes place in the past, and it's unclear, is the story going to continue to bounce back and forth constantly, or was this the setup, and now we're going to move forward in a more linear fashion from, like, 2014 on? Uh, did, Did you find that as disorienting as I did? I think I generally got where we were, but I didn't understand how it behooved the storytelling to have a flashback within a flashback. That's where you lose me. Yes, it's when you do a flashback within a flashback that I begin to lose sense of why are why are we here and where are we going to wind up at the end of it? Are we going to flash all the way back to the first place? Are we going to flash forward and forward again? What's the what's the sequence and why are we doing it this way? Yeah, it didn't feel like a sort of fun figure out the puzzle of the time. It wasn't like a Chris Nolan thing. No. It was just like, oh, we also want you to know this. <laughs> like, there are, there are maybe many... we wrote this after doing some coke. <laughs> there are many tones in this show. None of the tones are Chris Nolan. One of the tones is definitely, we just did some coke and we're going real fast here. Because uh, mm-hmm. I would I would describe the tone of the pilot in particular, but but both episodes so far as like, Aaron Sorkin meets Adam McKay. Yeah, definitely strong social network influence here. Oh, yes. Both in content and style. There's even a moment in the pilot where someone is like, you shouldn't call it Uber Cab. You should call it Uber. And I was like, yeah, I remember when Sean Parker said that. that. (laughs) I remember that line. Don't call it the Uber Cab. (laughs) Just Facebook. Uh, I did like in that, that scene... The first episode is them basically getting to the point where they're called Uber instead of Uber Cab. And part of that was them avoiding the regulations of a taxi business. And that moment comes somewhat naturally in them going, well, you know, the first answer is don't call it Uber Cab because then you're a cab company. Just call it Uber. And that, again, very derivative of the social network, but made sense in the course of that episode. And in a way, if I'd known that's where that episode was going, because the second episode has a lot more structure to it, and I understood what we were doing in the second episode a lot more clearly, 
I understood where we ended the first episode, but I didn't know that's where we were going until we got there. The other thing style tone-wise that I kept thinking of was uh, Showtime's Billions. Um, it is from the people who brought you Showtime's maybe. Billions. Mm-hmm. So I, m- my guess was, oh, they know that they have this fan base looking for more content. Um and I imagine if you're a Billions fan, you know who Travis Kalanick is. You're up in that world a bit. There's a lot of crossover in the Venn diagram between Billions viewer and Super Pumped viewer, for sure. Yeah. And if you love Billions, I recommend Super Pumped. That is fair to say. And and in a way, Billions is sort of uh, the Pepsi to Succession's Coke. It's substantially less delicious, but it, it scratches the same itch sometimes. And if you're a fan of Succession, there's a lot uh, to like here. In Also, in terms of humor, it's not as funny to me as Succession is, because Succession's also about fictional people who we get to kind of uh, torture a bit more in a, in a fun uh, Larry David-style torturing, I would say. But this show is about uh, people who are very amoral, comically amoral, and then it's painted in a kind of arch tone that lets them be over the top and truly villainous, when in reality, they weren't as overtly villainous as they seem. They acted villain- villainously, let's say. They did many despicable things. But in the, the course of the show, like in the second episode, there is literally a scene where uh, Travis Kalanick is essentially in a war room surrounded by like glowing dark blue screens saying, yes, we got him. We got him. Okay, that's a bit much. I don't I don't think that happened. But it tonally made a lot of sense and was very fun because the we got him that they were getting, they were getting Fred Armisen, who was playing the like commissioner of transit for Portland. Portland, yeah. Which truly was the best casting choice they've made so far. And there was something, again, very over the top, but very fun about watching Travis Kalanick, you know, hundreds of miles away in his war room, unleash a software update that allowed them to only send ghost cabs to Fred Armisen so he would stop busting their drivers. And if you, listener, don't remember, Uber was once a controversial service where the drivers would get in trouble or ticketed because they were breaking the law. And now that all sounds crazy, doesn't it? I do think when you talk about going over the top, that in some ways the show didn't go over the top enough for me. And that makes me wonder about the fact that they are dealing with real events. Uh, because Travis Kalanick is a larger-than-life figure. He actually says, you know, in a temper tantrum, he, like, storms off and says, you're not super pumped. (laughs) It was my favorite part of the episode. But when I've seen something like Wolf of Wall Street, this feels tame in comparison. Yes. And I could never tell what the show's real point of view was on him. And that is somewhat interesting. I don't need you to be like with a red flag over his head being like, this guy's a creep. But it seemed at the same time that they were showing him do despicable things that they were like, and wouldn't you like to be despicable too? Mm -hmm. Dude who watches Billions, come watch our show. I don't know. I I had very similar feelings, and in two different ways. 
uh, in the pilot, they do a, a lot of legwork to also show us like Travis's family and his parents and his brother, who he has this you know kind of hostile but brotherly relationship with. And I found all of that to be like totally from a different universe. I was like, what show am I watching here? And do I need you to humanize him this much when you're already coming in right out the gate with him joking about sexual assault and getting one over on the regulators? Like, you've already told me what I will think of him at the end of this. And now you're trying to backtrack and be like, yeah, but he's a son and a brother. And, you know, he's got normal foibles. And and that was a strange step backwards tonally to me. The the other side of that is, you know, I mentioned it's like Sorkin meets Adam McKay. Adam McKay is you know, the director of The Big Short, for example, or Vice. And those are deliberately over-the-top tonally. And that's a little divisive. Not everyone loves the Adam McKay house style. But I wanted more of that here. And they really walk up to it. There is a narrator, and it is the voice of Quentin Tarantino. And it is credited as Tarantino's voice. Like, that's the, the credit is voice of Tarantino. So is he Quentin Tarantino? Is it just he's a nameless narrator? He gives you the aura of someone who has an opinionated view that they are telling you the story from. But you never know who he is. And perhaps we will find out. It is really early. But uh, spoiler alert for the movie Vice, which if for some reason you are still trying to see and avoid spoilers for, I'm sorry, that was like five years ago. Uh, Vice, which was about Dick Cheney, has a narrator, and you wonder who this narrator is a lot, and you eventually find out it's a guy who died and Dick Cheney wound up with his heart in a heart transplant. And that level of over-the-top a tonal point of view, because then you understood the point of view of that narrator, I found very satisfying, or at least fully thought out, fully baked. And right now, they have not enough of the narrator for me to understand his perspective. He's not in enough of each episode for me to really get a sense of whether or not he's driving the story, or if he just pops in occasionally. And then he does narrate these scenes that, uh, you know, show us text on the screen and show us maybe uh, Travis suddenly looks like he's a college professor delivering a speech, but that's not what really happened. It's a stylized retelling of what happened in that moment. But I don't understand why those are only the moments we see like that and why there is so much of the rest of the show that feels ripped straight out of Billions or The Social Network. I have some theories on the Tarantino thing. Please. I'm really curious about it. I will admit that problematic issues aside, I am a pretty big Tarantino fan. You know, Pulp Fiction changed the world, but okay. So uh, when they introduced the character Mike Ovitz, who is a real person, who is uh, Kalanick's former VC, which with whom he has a really um, contentious relationship. Yeah, who sunk, sunk his last company. Mm-hmm. The narrator specifically says that this guy works in his world. The real life person, Mike Ovitz, is a Hollywood guy now. So I think that he is being Tarantino as Tarantino. Why? Are... That's interesting, but I, why? <laughs> there are two other moments that I found really, actually the most stylistically interesting parts of Super Pumped the first two episodes uh one is well it, it's the same moment but it has it tw- happens twice it's where we see 
the Kalanick character mythologize himself. He's telling someone a story and then we go into like a tight POV on him. And then we see that what he's telling them is a lie and the background fades away and we see green screens behind him. So he's sort of imagining his life as if it's like a film set with like a superimposed background of uh uh, I think it's the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, the, the first scene yeah. there is he's telling Kyle Chandler, Bill Gurley, the story of the founding of Uber. And his story is that he and his co-founder, played by the amazing John Bass, are uh, hanging out in Paris, just hanging out at the top of Eiffel Tower in Paris, looking down at all the cars down there and saying, surely there must be a more efficient way to match the supply with the demand. Surely our technology could come up with a way to solve this. Oh my God, we just had the most brilliant idea ever here atop the Eiffel Tower. And then the camera backs up and reveals it's a green screen. And we we cut to the real scene that happened, which is they were sitting at a diner and John Bass's character, Garrett, pitches the idea to Travis. Travis didn't have the idea. Travis just made it happen. So he's made up this narrative about his life. And I think those were the parts where I really got the show's POV. And it felt that he was like making a film of his life. And that perhaps what we were watching on the show was not just the story of the rise of Uber, but specifically... Travis's story of his monumental rise to success in those moments uh, and that part kind of made me lean in kind of got me excited and I could buy in that instance that part of his self-mythologizing is hearing Tarantino in his head if he thinks of mm. his life like a movie you know mm. the last thing I'll say on Tarantino sorry I know I'm blah 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 but He's not very good at voiceover. No, that surprises you? That is the least surprising thing about this show to me. Maybe the reason was... there's not enough of it is because it's not good and they cut some of it. I, I do wonder that. Did he rewrite some of his lines? They were hard to hear and kind of repetitive. Hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah. the way he speaks them, you sense that he is reading them directly and not fully uh, understanding the, the cadence of the words that he is saying from his mouth. And so sometimes you hear the words and don't know what they meant. Maybe we're supposed to think he's also on coke. <laughs> I, you know what? Maybe they all are. That would make a lot of sense on this show. Uh, but there is a lot there is a lot going on. What I will say about the show, it's interesting because there is so much tonally, stylistically happening. Uh, one of my favorite moments that in a way I think ties in perfectly with your the moments you just described with the green screen. In the second episode, he's watching YouTube videos late at night. This is when he's beginning to have trouble with his girlfriend, which of course he's going to have trouble with his girlfriend and leave her. Uh, but he's watching YouTube videos of this cellist i'm sorry i already forget flautist it's a musician he saw at a restaurant and uh, he finds her on youtube and is watching some of her videos and you think oh he's got a thing for that cellist maybe and uh, <laughs> then he stops watching that and he starts watching a video of jeff bezos talking about amazon's like core mantras the ethos of amazon the Oh, there's a, a very specific awful corporate word they use for this. That's their like maxims to live by. 
And that moment where, you know, he, yes, he wants the girl, but what he really wants is to be Jeff Bezos. And that level of self-mythologizing and the way that he is trying to write his story in that that lane that makes him as successful and lionized as Bezos, that I found so disturbing and so both truthful and it perfectly fed into the kind of narrative structure they were building because a few scenes later, he's telling his mother how he broke up with his girlfriend and it's a beautiful day in the park and they they had a very amicable breakup and then the camera pulls back and it's a green screen because of course that's not what happened. And instead, he just outright said like, I'm not into you anymore. This isn't working for me. I'll find you a new apartment because I like this one too much. Oof. Yeah, he he is not a likable character. No. Even with a Joseph Gordon-Levitt performance. Which is high praise for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think. I, I really think this is a great career move for him to try a role like this. Absolutely. And yeah, like I said, he, he's doing good work. I, none of the performances really struck me as bad. I did think most of the women's roles are pretty underwritten, so they yeah. didn't have a lot to work with. Um, with the exception of Elizabeth Shue, who plays his mother, who I thought was doing really good work. She the thing also... is, I don't know why her character's really in so much of it. It did seem like she or her character has a background in sales. Yes. So he seemed drawn to that and they kind of connected over that part of it. But yeah, I mean, most of the women characters in the first two episodes exist to give him advice um, and then disappear. Or they're there to give Kyle Chandler advice, as uh, <laughs> we saw when his wife appears, and his wife is played by the wonderful Jessica Hecht, who if you're in the New York City theater scene, you will just rewind that scene and watch it four times, because it, you'll take any dose of Jessica Hecht you can get. Really delightful. But yes, what is she there to do? Give Kyle Chandler advice. Mm, and they talk about nothing else, though. I mean, nothing, nothing. I don't, even, I don't think she has a name. No. No, I well, I looked it up on IMDb. She does, because she's a real human being. You know, the character in reality is the wife of Bill Gurley, so she does get a name in reality. But no, we never learn her name, nor understand really what she does or what their relationship is beyond occasionally discussing what's happening at the companies he's investing in. If the folks at Showtime wanted to give Elizabeth Shue and Jessica Hecht and perhaps that lovely woman who played maybe a cello, a show, mm-hmm. I would watch it. I 100% would watch it. They could also get Carrie Bichet involved. She is probably the most substantial female character in the show as Austin, who is mm. the woman employee who is never in the offices in San Francisco. She is always on the field she's in portland dealing with the drivers in portland when they're upset then in the second half of the second episode where they focus on new york city she's in new york city where cabbies are like throwing bottles at her and that's it so she doesn't really get any screen time with the main cast but the screen time she gets is very good they also seem to hint that she, or not hint, they say pretty explicitly that <laughs> she she's in problem. recovery from they, they, an, yeah. an alcohol addiction. I, that, <laughs> it that seems like moment. that might come back. That was a moment where I guess it probably will. I I felt like the second episode, as we kind of wrap up here, the second episode I found more compelling 
in a certain way than the first because it was a much more straightforward story. The second episode begins with the crisis in Portland. The Fred Armisen's goons are trying to shut them down in Portland, and they need to get away from the regulatory problems so that they can, one, stop hemorrhaging money paying these fines for their drivers, and two, they need to break into New York City because that's the white whale. That's the, that's the goal is to take over New York City. And so the whole episode has a really clear dilemma. How do we get around these regulatory problems? problems and how do we make it work in New York and then the episode gets kind of sidetracked in this big party they throw that I, I I understood what it was doing there but honestly that was the least interesting part of the episode to me what was more interesting is seeing Carrie Bechet in New York trying to rally the troops there uh, and there's a scene where she then goes home to her hotel after a party at a bar where she declined to drink because she said it was a school night. And you see her sitting in the bar, in the hotel room rather, and she's looking exhausted and uh, like, boy, she could go for a drink. And you don't know anything else about her really. And she looks at the mini fridge and then she gets up and she goes to the mini fridge. And then she opens the mini fridge and it's empty. And Carrie Bechet is a fantastic actor. You can read on her face everything you need to know about that scene that she wanted a drink that she shouldn't have, and that she was relieved when she found out that she couldn't have it. And then she calls Travis and says, I saw what you did with the mini fridge. Thank you so much, boss. And that is the moment I went, guys, just stop. Take the win. Take the trust that the actors are good at acting, because they are. And let them show me the story instead of you telling it to me extremely directly. I totally agree with that assessment. And that made me feel that that plot point was going to come back, perhaps, because it doesn't seem like a lot of the show is accidental. And that may just be because there's quite a lot of story to tell. But when they spend so much on that huge party, you know, some of that felt gratuitous. So, I don't know, just more like subtle character work when you have leads this good would be great. Yeah, because most of the things that happened at the party involved no-name extras that we never will care about or see again. And, you know, they're not why I tuned into the show. I tuned into the show because you've got a stacked cast and an interesting story to tell. I also think that part with the big story or with the big party getting out of control was supposed to show us that Travis was losing control. And it did show that he was spending money exorbitantly. Yeah. But he wasn't necessarily engaging in all of this incredibly risky behavior at these parties. And if he's totally out of control in a TV universe in which I watch Kendall Roy, this seems awfully tame. Yes, he it seems does. Very in control. So I just not sure storytelling wise, even without that very easy comparison, that it was doing the work it was supposed to do. Yeah, and I just thought they could have spent more time on the actual crisis of the episode, which was getting into New York City. That was such a big thing they brought up constantly in the first episode and the second episode. And then them getting into New York City is one scene at a bar, one bottle getting thrown at Carrie Bechet's head, and then a video game sequence in which we are subjected to a video game 3D rendering of Bill de Blasio as a a villain 
you fight in a fight sequence in Times Square with dollar signs flying around you as if this is the worst version of Doom anyone has ever created in their lives. And this is like a 90-second sequence in which he just narrates the entire story of Uber's entry into New York City and narrates the part where he had the app prompt people to write to de Blasio and complain, and they rigged the app to show them how much longer wait times would be if the city capped the number of Uber drivers to protect the taxi industry. And I don't want to get into whether or not any of those decisions that de Blasio tried and totally failed to make were the right decisions, but that was a huge news story. That was a huge, passionate issue in New York for many, many people that pitted you know, wealthy uh, transplants against hardworking uh, local people who lived here their whole lives and worked here. And it also pitted Manhattanites against Outerboro people who finally could get cabs easily with Uber. It, it was such an interesting social dynamic for a show that seems, on the surface, interested in exploring the exploitation and dynamics that the app created. And it literally glossed over it in the most superficial way possible. I will say that is probably the show I'm going to pull up on my phone and have my friends watch <laughs> that little video game clip of Bill de, Bill de Blasio. You're completely right in your assessment of how it handles those issues. And I am actually, I don't think that the show is really interested in diving into those social issues, which makes it like less of the McKay Sorkin. Yeah. It's pulling their style, but I'm not sure that it's interested in the sort of cultural critique that those creators are engaging in. Mm. Well said. Well said, Diane. And I think that is a great place to end our discussion of Super Pumped. I do want to note at the end of the second episode, they clearly tee up the drama for the third episode, which is a little company called Lyft showing up. And so, you know, the structure is clearly there. Each week is going to have a different crisis in the creation and rise of Uber. How well they explore them, I think, is the question of the day. And uh, you, dear listener, can find out when you watch Super Pumped on Showtime. Again, the pilot is available on YouTube for free. And you can, of course, send us your thoughts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can tell us what you think there. You can tell us what you think of Super Pumped or of the show itself. You can also subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts except not Spotify. And you can share the show with a friend. That's the best way to tell people to tell us that you like the show. And you can send us your feedback. The email address is podcast at streamageddon.com. We would love to know what you think of the shows. We would love to know what shows you would like us to talk about. And a programming note, we're going to take a week off to get caught up on our uh, binge watching and find some more shows that we are excited to talk to you about. So in the meantime, if you want to suggest some shows to us, again, email us podcast at streamageddon.com or you can find us on twitter i am at i am chris barlow and diane is at diane nora diane with two n's diane i I cannot wait to watch some more uh streams with you same it's really all i want to do even the ones that i don't love (laughs) i love the experience i am always super pumped to stream a new show super pumped yes (laughs) 